liberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Just liberty.org. Just liberty.org. Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and welcome to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. A Texas man was arrested for slapping a New York Yankees fan, which right there, I'd argue he had it coming. And making him cry during the second game of the American League Championship Series against the Astros in Houston. Scott, was this bad sportsmanship? I suppose. On the other hand, I'd point out that making Yankees fans cry is something I now have in common with the Astros' Jose Altuve. (laughs) And and really, if you're going to arrest somebody for pimp-slapping New York Yankees, they probably need to put handcuffs on half the Houston Astros pitching staff at this Mm -hmm. point. And, and so I, I feel like I'm in good company at, yeah. at the very least. Yeah, I mean, I think the arresting officers would say that it's not for making him cry because, hell, it's the Yankees fans, but it's the, the slapping. That, that's right. Well, and the, the funny part about this, I, I, take, I took credit for it, but in reality, the person who really did the slapping turned out to be a former Montgomery County Justice of the Peace. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really loved that part of the story. That that was really something. Yeah, don't get arrested in Montgomery County's folks. It's not good. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the October 2019 edition of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? Great. How are you doing, Scott? Better now that the Astros are in the World Series. Go Astros. <laughs> We have a fine show coming up for you today, folks. An innocent woman is killed by police in Fort Worth. Texas may execute an innocent man. And we delve into the radical drop in misdemeanor arrests in Texas and across the country. Mandy, what are you looking forward to discussing in the podcast today? Uh, You know, it's I wouldn't say looking forward to it because it's sort of a sad topic. But I am looking excited about talking about the Rodney Reed case because it's fascinating and I think it's an important topic to cover. It, I'm looking forward to it too. Bryce Benjet, our guest today, is a really smart guy and I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say. First up though, in our top story, Fort Worth police officer Aaron Dean shot and killed a black 28-year-old woman named Atatiana Jefferson after responding to a neighbor's 311 call for a welfare check. The neighbor noticed Jefferson's front door was open and her lights were on late at night, but it turned out she was up playing video games with her young nephew. Officer Dean, who has since resigned before he could be interrogated about the incident, decided to sneak around to the back of the house rather than going to the front door to announce himself. He saw Jefferson's silhouette in the window and shot her three seconds later. Black community leaders in Fort Worth say this isn't an isolated incident, citing a history of police shootings and unnecessary use of force against black people. Officer Dean has been formally charged with murder by Tarrant County's Republican District Attorney. So, Mandy, although we're still early in the process, what's your take on the latest police shooting in Fort Worth? You know, if it really is part of a pattern of activity, it's definitely showing a problem of training and and a need for a culture shift within the Tarrant County Police Department. Like or within the police departments within Fort Worth, you know, in in this instance, you know, there are a lot of questions about why some why a law enforcement officer wouldn't announce themselves, why they would fire their gun on someone who is in their own home and presumably just responding to someone being outside. 
in this context. And, and as you said, in sort of your layout, this was just, this wasn't a 911 call. This was just a 311 call to say, hey, someone's door is open. Right. And why you wouldn't just walk up to the door and say, hello, this is the police. Is anyone home? Is beyond me. That's a very bizarre way to react, to sneak around to the backyard and peep in the windows. Yeah. Whoever told this person that to do that instead of going to the front door kind of raises some questions. Well, the poor man who actually called into 311 has been interviewed publicly, and, oh, I feel so sorry for that fella. He just feels terrible. He obviously had no intention for anything like this to happen, and, you know, he was doing it for her benefit. He he didn't want anything bad to happen to her and, and just feels completely terrible, and I, I totally understand. On the blog, I, I had linked this um, in – in a way, to the Amber Geiger case in that both of these officers basically were just scared to death and shot first yeah. and and didn't take a moment to de-escalate, to, to think, are there alternatives to just gunning someone down? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned police training. The critique I made, and it's a critique that's been made by um, law enforcement officers themselves around the country increasingly, is that police training emphasizes to cops, you're in danger constantly. You're in danger from everyone you meet. Anyone you stop at a traffic stop could gun you down. You know, the most important thing is for you to get home to your family at the end of the (laughs) night every night. Not the other people you're interacting with. That's right. but, But you. And in reality... This dramatically overstates the risks that police officers face on the job. When you look at the federal government's census of fatal occupational industries, police officers have a less dangerous in terms of dying on the job, a less dangerous job than the people collecting your garbage, than the yeah. average construction worker, than taxi drivers, than bus drivers and, and truck drivers, uh, Fishermen, farmers, ranchers, all these people have more dangerous jobs than, than police officers. And while I not, don't want to understate the extent to which police officers face other risks besides getting shot, many of them have uh, nearly as many die in traffic accidents as die uh, from, from a shooting. And certainly they're at risk of, of being subjected to other lesser level assaults and, and other types of injuries. But in terms of actually not going home to your family at night, it's not the most dangerous job in the world. And so all of this police officer training that frames use of force around this heightened sense of risk that really is not reality based, I think is a huge part of the problem. Yeah. Um, Amber Geiger had gone through de-escalation training and she testified that she never thought to use any of it there. Officer Dean had completed 40 hours of what's called CIT training, which is how to handle mentally ill people. Well, that's essentially de-escalation training, right? Don't shoot them before you can get them mental health treatment. Yeah. But in this case, it's almost like his actions created a problem. Very much. You know, that he didn't go to the front door and that he's going around the back, which you know, scares the homeowner. 
right. or the, the, the person that he's trying to check in on. So you that, have two scared people yeah. interacting. And and of the two, he's the one who was trained to shoot immediately if he's scared. Yeah, and she's, you know, pulling her. And so sometimes law enforcement unwittingly can create a problem. And that seems to me what happened here. Next up, the ACLU issued a state-by-state blueprint for reducing incarceration levels by 50% by 2025. But Scott, although you worked for the ACLU in a past life, you didn't find their recommendations convincing. Where did they fall short? I really thought that this was a facile and kind of almost worthless analysis. Um, uh, You know, I I didn't look at all the other states' reports. I only looked at Texas. But the Texas report really didn't tell anyone here anything that we can use to actually help address the mass incarceration problem. So some of their recommendations were reduce time served for drug distribution by 50%. Institute alternatives to end admissions for drug possession. Reduce average time served by 50% for assault. Reduce time served by 40% for robbery. Um, Reduce time served by 40% for burglary. Well, (laughs) yes. You don't find that insightful? (sighs) Yes, I guess if we reduce everyone's time served, then, then it would ultimately cause fewer people to be in prison. That's absolutely true. But they give us no insight whatsoever into how to do that. Yeah. And and in fact, the reality is we already have so many people in prison with very long sentences that if going forward you reduce all the sentences, we would still have mass incarceration for a very long time. You know, the sentencing project um, out of D.C., has made a proposal that that no prison sentence should be longer than 20 years. And I essentially agree with that in, in most cases. But my criticism of that was that even if you implemented that tomorrow, if we reduced every sentence on the yeah. books to 20 years, because we have so many people with sentences of 60 years, 80 years, 99 years, life, life without parole, yeah, that you wouldn't start to see a really big decline until 20 years from now. Yeah. And and so that the same thing goes here when you say, oh, well, let's reduce these sentences. Well, that doesn't address all the people already in prison who have super long sentences. The only way to actually do that is to increase parole rates, which is really absent in this analysis. There's no focus, no discussion of process and procedure at all, which is surprising because those are the ways to affect a ma- like a large proportion of the cases that are out there in a way that isn't discussing conduct because that's what makes the sentencing issue so hard. Right. Well, and they give oh. us just no specifics at all. So when they say, you know, oh, we should eliminate, you know, prison admissions for drug sentences, for example. Well, there is a way to do that, and that would be to reduce the drug possession penalties to a class A misdemeanor. I suppose you could just legalize everything, but assuming that's not on the table, yeah. um, you could reduce penalties to a class A misdemeanor so that they're they're if they're sentenced, it's to county jail and not to prison. But they don't even get to that level of specificity. 
It's no. just they just look at the category and say, oh, fewer people should be in for that. Fewer people should be in for this. Fewer people should be in for robbery. Well, you're not really giving us any recommendation to 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 work from. And and I don't think anyone could look at this report in Texas and think, oh, now I know how to reduce mass incarceration. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a missed opportunity. And I looked at a few other states and it the reports that I saw were essentially the same format as Texas with just different information dropped in. So they just looked at every state and identified the offenses for which the broadest number of people are incarcerated and said, cut that. Right. And, right. and in truth, I believe it is absolutely possible to reduce incarceration levels in Texas by 50%. I, I completely believe yeah. it. more than 60% of everyone in Texas prison today is already parole eligible. They are eligible yeah. to be released right now. We have, you know, 16% or so of people are in there for drug crimes, most of them for, for possession. We could reduce that to a class A misdemeanor and knock a big chunk out and also reduce the probation rolls significantly as well. So I believe absolutely that there are ways to get there to get to a 50% reduction, but it's not going to be by saying, oh, we reduce the time served for assault by X amount. There's not even any way to do that within Texas sentencing structure. So we don't really have very many mandatory minimums the way other states do. So a first degree felony, if you commit murder, you're still the, parole eligible. The sentence is five to 99. And the jury just picks a number in between those levels. Well, what is the mechanism then for reducing time served for that? There's no you can't there's no way you can just say, oh, we're going to take robbery and reduce time served for that. No, the range is so huge. Yeah, that even if you were to ratchet down the range and cut it by 50 percent, you're probably not even getting to 50 percent of those cases. That's right. So and, it really did not make sense. I found this very simplistic and disappointing. And I'm I'm not sure other than just like fulfilling the deliverable on a a grant they got or something, um, what it is they thought they were accomplishing by, by putting this out. Rodney Reed is scheduled to be executed on November 20th for a crime he likely did not commit. Unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes, only Governor Greg Abbott and the Board of Pardons and Paroles can spare his life. Mandy and I sat down with Reed's attorneys, Bryce Benjet of the Innocence Project and Quincy McNeil, who works at a civil litigation firm, Mayor Brown in Houston. Here's how they describe the evidence against Reed in light of corrected forensic testimony and new witnesses corroborating Reed's version of events. These comments are excerpted from a longer conversation. I'll publish our full interview separately on Grits in just a few days. Rodney Reed is on death row for the murder of Stacy Stites, a woman with whom he has always maintained he was having an affair. Tell us why you think her fiancé, Jimmy Fennell, is the real perpetrator, Bryce. Well, after the murder, police quickly focused on Jimmy Fennell, who was the victim's fiancé, as a likely suspect. Uh, they investigated him 
They brought him in for interrogations. Uh, when he testified at the trial, he talked about how these were aggressive interrogations where they yelled at him, tried to get him to confess to the murder. He was subjected to two polygraph examinations in which he was found deceptive on questions about whether he committed the crime. Um, when he was confronted with that, he took the fifth, stopped cooperating with the investigation. Uh, after Rodney Reed was put on trial, however, he did testify in a manner that implicated Reed. Uh, what we've found out about Jimmy Fennell over the years has confirmed every suspicion that the police had back then. Uh, when we looked into his history, there was complaints about racial discrimination and violence as a police officer, even before the murder. Uh, after the murder, his uh, woman he dated came forward and said, yeah, he was uh, virulently racist. He, you know, he would object to uh, her even visiting a black hairdresser. Uh, when she broke things off with him, he stalked her. Uh, and so this was a pattern that we saw. Um, and I've been working on this case since 2002. Uh, and over the years, I've been investigating this. And then I remember, you know, several years uh, after I took the case, I hear on the news one day that Fennell's been arrested. And uh, lo and behold, he ends up being convicted after being charged with kidnapping and sexual assault of a young woman who he was dispatched to help. So here we have, you know, 2006, he's a, uh, alleged to have committed this sexual assault and rape, pleads guilty, ends up serving 10 years in prison for this crime. And when the Texas DPS investigates him, they found that this was a pattern. Uh, there were other corroborated allegations of sexual assault, uh, other misconduct going back for years. Uh, so this is somebody where he's initially suspected of the murder. Uh, they drop it because of Reed's DNA. Uh, but lo and behold, we find out that this is part of a long-standing pattern of misconduct. Uh, and that's something we certainly want the courts to investigate. Um, and this is a person that had motive. Uh, as part of our investigation... We've revealed, and, and this was uh, Mr. Reed's defense the entire time. He, he has always said that he was having a relationship with Stasis Stites. Um, and through the incredible investigative work that uh, Quincy McNeil has been doing on this case, uh, we found uh, a number of witnesses who have no relationship to the Reed family, no reason to uh, come forward other than that they know the truth, uh, that they could say that they knew something about this relationship. Good for you, Quincy. T tell us about those new witnesses. Tell us about the new evidence that you've uncovered. Sure, Scott, I'm happy to. First of all, Scott, thank you, and thank you, Mandy, also for shining a light on this important case. Uh, we have heard from witnesses, and they have said uh, some things that we find compelling. And I just want to share with you some of those things. Uh, we have heard from, for example, within the last three or four weeks, in fact, since the execution date has been established, we've heard from three witnesses. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention, we've, we've heard from more than that, but there are three in particular I want to I want to talk about in this in this uh, podcast. First of all, we've heard from a former partner of of Jimmy Finnell's uh, with the Bashar County Sheriff's Office, a partner with whom he worked uh, and was close to. Uh, that partner has shared with us that in the weeks before Stacy was murdered, uh, Jimmy Finnell told this partner that he thought that as Jimmy Finnell thought 
that uh, Stacy was sleeping with a black man. And that's to put it charitably because he used a racial epithet according to the memory of his partner. Uh, we think that is chilling. We think those sorts of words are, are, are provide compelling evidence of motive for Mr. Uh, Fennell to have committed this crime. Uh, we've also heard from a uh, sheriff deputy at a neighboring county. And this sheriff deputy uh, talked to us about coming, well, he came forward to say that he witnessed at the funeral of Stacy Stites, Stacy Stites' funeral, he witnessed uh, Jimmy Fennell walk to the, uh, walk to the, the casket of Stacy Stites and say something along the lines of, you got what you deserve, staring down at her, at her dead body. Mm-hmm. Those words we think are compelling and chilling. We've also heard from a salesperson, an insurance salesperson. All three of these, again, since the execution date has been set, people coming forward. This salesperson tells us that she witnessed Jimmy Fennell, uh, threatened Stacy in her presence in November of 1995. Um, it, to, to, to flesh this out a little bit, uh, the sales lady was speaking with Stacy Stites and Jimmy Fennell as well. And, uh, she was offering insurance to Stacy Stites, mm-hmm. uh, offering to sell insurance to Stacy Stites. And, and Stacy made a comment, uh, along these lines. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty young. I don't need any insurance. And, and Jimmy Fennell then sort of corrected her in a very abrupt way and aggressive way, according to this, this sales lady and said, uh, you'll need insurance. Uh, I, we will, uh, she says something to the effect of, um, if, if you cheat on me, uh, I will kill you and no one will know that I did it. And so here again, these are witnesses who've come forward with, with testimony, uh, eyewitness accounts that we find to be compelling and worthy of the court's attention. And isn't it the case that a couple of her co-workers, she worked at the HEB there, a couple of her co-workers have also given some corroboration that they were having an affair. Scott, that's exactly right. And I think that's important because these are people who have no association with Reed. These are people who knew Stacy Stites and, and they have come forward and said that. Uh, for example, there are two who worked with her at HEB and these two individuals at HEB have said they were aware of a relationship. Specifically, one woman says that Stacy Stites spoke to her in a break room and talked to her. Stacy Stites talked to her about the relationship that she had with a black man named Rodney. And uh, a second uh, witness, a second HEB employee who knew Stacy Stites has come forward and said that he, he physically saw Stacy Stites and Rodney read together and knew of that. And, and then we've also heard from a cousin of, of Stacy Stites who's come forward and said that he physically saw Stacy Stites and Rodney read together. So, you know, at the trial, that was, it, it, what was said was that there wasn't a relationship. And now what we see is compelling evidence that, in fact, all along, Rodney Reed's statements about there being a relationship were true. That's what the evidence shares. Excellent. And then in addition to you know, the evidence of the affair and motive that um, Jimmy Fennell may have had, isn't there also new forensic evidence that places him with her at the time of death? Yeah, so the state's case in this matter rested on two pillars. They had uh, the accusation that um, Stacey Seitz and Rodney Reed were strangers um, and that there was no relationship. And therefore, also in light of some, what we now know as faulty forensic evidence, that 
the presence of Rodney Reed's DNA uh, on vaginal swabs taken from the body uh, was from a sexual assault that took place contemporaneous with the murder. And that's what the jury heard. And so where Rodney Reed is saying at the trial that I was having this affair with Stacey Stites, the jury that heard the state's forensic evidence couldn't credit that because they were told without contradiction that he sexually assaulted Stacy Stites contemporaneous with the murder. Uh, now that we've investigated this case for years, uh, we know that none of that is true. Uh, we've talked to Roberto Bayardo, who was the Travis County medical examiner, who conducted the autopsy, testified at trial. He has recanted his opinions. He now says the fact that he just saw a small amount of semen on the sample showed that this was consensual sex that took place around a day before the murder. Um, we've presented this to the agencies that employed the experts that testified for the state, the two others, and they have recanted the same type of testimony that said that the semen that they found was fresh. Now they say, well, that actually could be around for up to three days. Um, and so everything that the jury heard to convict has been recanted. And in replacement for that, we have actually uh, presented this case to three of the most qualified, experienced forensic pathologists in the country. Michael Bodden, Werner Spitz, Leroy Riddick. And each of these three forensic pathologists have said that it is impossible for Rodney Reed to have murdered Stacy in the two-hour window that the state presented to the jury. And in fact, that the time of death was consistent with a time before midnight when Jimmy Finnell testified at the trial, he was at home alone with Stacy. Um, and this is very important because the condition of the body actually shows that she was dead for a period of four to six hours before she was even left at the scene where she was found, uh, which makes it impossible for her to have been on her way to work and then been abducted and murdered. And wasn't she found in Fennell's pickup truck? Is that correct? Well, she was transported uh, in Fennell's pickup truck. And we know she was dead in the truck because there's some decompositional fluid found there, um, which, again, takes hours to develop. So the state's theory was that she leaves her house at around 3 a.m. in the morning. Her truck is found uh, with this material at 5.23 a.m., so that's a two-hour window, roughly. Um, and again, where it takes more time than that for this purge to develop in the truck, uh, we know she was dead long before the state alleged. it's time for a segment we call Suspicious Mysteries, in which we analyze unexplained criminal justice trends. Last week, the Wall Street Journal ran a story describing a decline in misdemeanor arrests and prosecutions over the last decade a trend for which experts can cite no solid explanation. In Texas, all types of misdemeanors declined by one-third over the last 10 years, 
while Class C misdemeanor traffic tickets declined by 40% and non-traffic Class Cs declined by 48%, all during a period when the state population boomed. So Scott, what do you think is going on here? I find this fascinating because not only do we not understand why misdemeanor arrests declined over the last decade, misdemeanor crime by all measures has been declining for much longer than that. Mm -hmm. And we don't know why arrests continued to go up for 20 years before (laughs) they began going down. To add on to that, to my knowledge, there's around 22 different significant theories of why crime is declining in the first place. And no one really even understands what the causes of crime decline are. So we don't know why crime has declined for the last 30 years. We don't know why arrests continued to go up, even though crime is going down. Mm -hmm. And we don't know why now, um, based on this Wall Street Journal story, we don't know why arrests have have started to go down finally after crime was, was on its way down for so long. So this story really drove home to me how little anyone fundamentally understands about crime trends in America. I I feel like we're flying blind in in so many ways. And some of the things that the Wall Street Journal had suggested as reasons for this don't really necessarily apply to Texas. So they had suggested that uh, reduced marijuana penalties and um, decriminalization had, or, or legalization in some states had caused this. Well, in Texas, we've not reduced marijuana penalties and, and marijuana arrests are one of the areas that's continued to increase mm-hmm. over this decade. And so it's definitely not that. They had suggested that the uh, reduction in stop and frisk practices might be one of the reasons. But there again, that's something that is much more common on the East Coast. Here in Texas, policing is much more automobile-based. It's cops driving around in cars and from one 911 call to the next. We don't have people walking a beat and just stopping people on the street randomly in the way you might in New York City. So that doesn't seem to apply quite as much. Yeah, but you know that was one of the, the aspects of the article that I found really interesting because they, they did at one point cite a, you know some sort of official from the New York PD. And he likened broken windows theory to cancer treatment, where, you know, he basically said, you know, we've we've had like this lethal dose that has allowed us to experiment with lesser doses, let fewer arrests in other contexts now that we got rid of the crime, essentially. And, you know, I'm a, a broken windows theory skeptic. At a minimum, but I do think that law enforcement practices have probably changed, not just in New York, but around the country as people are aware that there were problems with CompStat and the incentives it created. Right. I asked a couple of uh, national experts who I respect what their thoughts were. One of them had said, ironically, and this again shows we don't really know how to interpret any of this. Uh, Megan Stevenson, who's a law professor and an economist at George Mason University, um, suggested that one of the reasons for the misdemeanor crime decline is exactly what you said. Many, many more people are now broken windows skeptics and broken windows policing has simply gone out of vogue. It's not yeah. something that departments are emphasizing as much. Well, that's all these low level misdemeanor arrests. So while the guy in the Wall Street Journal had suggested, oh, broken windows worked. And so now <laughs> yeah. we can, we can experiment with fewer arrests. 
Her thought was, oh, well, we finally realized broken windows didn't work and just stopped doing something that wasn't working. Yeah. And so I thought that that's interesting, too, that, you know, you can interpret this in both directions on broken windows. And, and maybe it has nothing to do with that at all. But uh, but cl- crime continue either way. They stop doing it that's for right. whatever reason. And crime hasn't spiked. It's that's continued right. to decline. Professor Stevenson had a couple of other interesting thoughts. One was that increased surveillance technology has reduced the willingness to shoplift or do graffiti. Another one I've heard is that now so many consumer products are cheap and not really like that valuable anymore that they're simply not worth stealing. <laughs> and, and because you, you just Maybe. replace things now when they're, when they're broken or whatever and, and, and used items don't have that much resale value. Another interesting suggestion that Professor Stevenson gave was that gentrifying cities means poor people no longer live where rich people work. I thought that was fascinating and, mm. and really rang true in a sense to me and from, from our experience here in Austin where we've had so much gentrification in the central city. And then we saw uh, decriminalization of sitting and lying and homelessness here in Austin. And all of a sudden, homeless people, extremely poor people, were showing up in the view of rich people. And even though all the crime data says that, that there's been at most a tiny, tiny crime increase since that happened, the weeping and gnashing of teeth among sort of the middle and upper class folks here in Austin is totally out of proportion to anything that any of the data says is going on. And so the idea that that wealthier folks overreact um, being in the presence of poor people really seems to me somewhat corroborated by, by what we've seen here in Austin. The numbers here in Texas on misdemeanor declines are really, really dramatic. Just yeah. to just to talk about a few of them. Even in like traffic tickets, Class C misdemeanor traffic tickets, which are criminal offenses here in Texas, they have declined from 9.1 million tickets given in 2005 to 5.6 million in 2018. And this is a period when the population in Texas has exploded. There's yeah. a lot more people here, a lot more drivers here than there were a decade ago. But far, far fewer traffic tickets. Non-traffic Class C misdemeanors were at 2.1 million back in 2003 and have declined all the way to 1.1 million in 2018. So huge, huge declines. Mm-hmm. We've seen big declines in everything from state traffic laws, local non-traffic misdemeanors, uh, non-traffic misdemeanors in the penal code. All of these have declined significantly. Uh, another one that probably plays some role in our numbers is juvenile crime. Uh, back in 2012, there were 314,000 juvenile cases filed in Texas. Mm-hmm. In 2018, it had dropped all the way to 115,000. So, Whoa. so almost a two thirds drop. drop. These are big, big numbers. And good one. And that might be school to prison pipeline, some changes to the truancy laws. That's right. Texas like, has made a lot of reforms. After the Texas Youth Commission scandal where they said, okay, these youth prisons are too dangerous to be sending people to anymore. Let's really scale back the juvenile justice system. So that's that's in reaction to some policy changes 
On the others, the adult misdemeanors, we can't point to the same type of big league policy changes that, that would explain it. I find all this completely fascinating and, and it's positive. It's a, it's a very good yeah. thing that there's less crime. There's less people being arrested, fewer people going to jail and prison, fewer crime victims, fewer crime victims. Exactly. But I, but I find it fascinating that for all the smart people, you know, who look at criminal justice policy, none of us really have a good idea what the hell is going on. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm chomping on the bit. Let's do this. The State Commission on Judicial Conduct in August reprimanded 11 Harris County judges for wrongly jailing indigent defendants because they couldn't afford bail. But last month, the commission retracted those public reprimands without giving a reason, prompting the Houston Chronicle editorial board to say they should be, quote, embarrassed by the wrist slap given local judges. Then the paper went on to accuse them of stonewalling legislators when they tried to exercise oversight of the agency. Mandy, what changes need to happen at the commission to hold judges accountable for misconduct? Well, I think part of the problem is, you know, the implementation of the issue. Like the fact that they issued a reprimand and then went back on it shows that there's the powers there. It's not being applied properly. Right. Um, I think the other side to this is that reprimand shouldn't be secret. How can the public make a responsible or informed decision in a judicial election if they aren't aware of a candidate's misconduct like that that seems to go to the heart of their job next up texas crime labs are suffering massive backlogs according to a report from the mccallan monitor drug cases in the rio grande valley take more than two years to process and dna analysis takes on average more than 1300 days or more than three and a half years Scott, what are the implications for such long delays? Really, this is one of the biggest problems in the justice system in Texas, and it gets almost no attention. When you think about these drug cases, we have examples from Harris County and elsewhere where hundreds and hundreds of people are falsely accused based on a field test. Mm -hmm. And when it takes more than two years for the actual test to come back, Anyone who can't afford an attorney and can't afford to pay for their own testing is just going to have to either sit in jail or take a plea deal. So it's causing many, many false convictions. And then on the DNA analysis, three and a half years to come back. And these are almost all violent offenses where you're seeking the DNA evidence. It means that the victims simply aren't getting justice. You're, you yeah. have speedy trial problems. Which could result. be a public safety issue. Which could be, a, that's right, that people that these people may end up not being held accountable for violent offenses because it's taking this long. It's a massive problem, and it isn't just in the McAllen area, too. They were looking at their region, but this is a problem everywhere in the state, and the legislature desperately needs to address this, either by putting a lot more money into crime labs mm -hmm. or scaling back the types of cases that we're prosecuting. I mean, the drug cases maybe just don't need to be as big a priority if we can't process them any more quickly. Than they yeah. Okay, last one. A jury acquitted a prison guard in a murder trial in Brazoria County after the guard slammed a handcuffed inmate to the ground and killed him. The same guard had been disciplined for the same thing several months before involving the same inmate. 
Mandy, what message does this verdict send? That prison guards can attack inmates with impunity. The video on this case is pretty extraordinary. Like the, the inmate was down and on his knees and handcuffed. He was fully under the guards' control. With several guards standing around and it's all fine, apparently. <laughs> apparently, it's, it's sanctioned. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Rich for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. A special thanks to Speaker Moody and Chairwoman Thompson for attending TDS's luncheon. It was a great event, and it was my privilege, or TDS's privilege, to honor them. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train window where Lord and the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 I'm getting old. When the train pulls into the station, when the driver blows his horn, my baby will be there waiting, Lord, just as sure as the day you were born.